Before we get into God's word, I want to talk about the subject of war. We know that Israel and Hamas are in war right now, and we know what's going on, a lot of the carnage that's involved. And Christians ask the question, does the Bible address the subject of war? Well, there's no command in the Bible that directly states you should go to war, but there's three primary views, and we don't have time to unpack this. I just wanted to give you an overview and then tell you where I think the scripture stands. There are three primary views as to war. The first one is what I would call activism. Activism is the view that says a Christian is obligated to obey the government because God has established the government. And if the government asks you to engage in warfare, you are obligated to submit to the government. Whether the war is just or unjust, you're still called to obey and do what the government asks you to do. So those under Hitler's regime, uh, they were obligated to obey what Hitler said, despite the fact that he wanted to commit genocide. That is the view of activism. They base it on Romans 13. Then there's a second view. Many of you have heard of this called passivism. Passivism says there is never a justification for war. Jesus said we're to forgive our enemies. We're to turn the other cheek. We are not to kill other people based in Exodus, Matthew chapter 5. And so passivists would say that War is evil, and it is wrong, and we have a right to disobey the government. In fact, they would even say on a personal level, if someone breaks into your house and someone was to attempt to rape and murder my wife, that I am obligated to allow that to happen. And so that's a view called passivism. And then finally, there is a view called selectivism. Now, selectivism basically says that a Christian is to engage in war in selective situations. And the situation would be, it would have to be a just war. We see this in Genesis chapter 14 with Abraham going to get Lot when Lot was taken. We see uh, the holy wars that God enacted in the Old Testament. And also in Romans chapter 13, Paul makes it clear that the government does not bear the sword for nothing. And so if you have an evil aggressor that comes against a nation or if somebody's coming against you and wants to kill you, this view says you have a right to defend yourself. And I believe this is the biblical view. There are some wars that we should not engage in. I think they're ethically and morally wrong. On the other hand, there are just wars. And I think Israel is involved in a just war. Now, does that mean that everyone within Israel is pure and everything else? No. Uh, wars get messy. They get ugly. But Israel has a right to defend herself. And I believe Israel has a right to stamp out evil and terrorism because of what they're doing. And so I would encourage us to pray for Israel in the days to come as they engage in this war. The Bible makes it clear that God has a future for Israel. Romans chapter 11, it says one day all Israel will be saved. That doesn't mean every single Jewish person is going to be converted, but there is going to be a mass revival among the Jewish people. Romans 11 says that. God is going to pour out, Zechariah 14 says, a spirit of supplication and faith among the Jewish people, and many of them will look on their Messiah whom they have pierced, Zechariah says. And so we need to pray for Israel. And we also need to pray that the Muslims would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. I was reading an article a couple of years ago. Maybe you read the article. It was with Mike Pence and Monica Lewinsky. Uh, basically, there was this dialogue going on, and Mike Pence said to the news outlets that we ought to spend, Mike Pence being a Christian, more time on our knees praying than we do looking at the Internet. 
Well, of course, Monica Lewinsky took him to task on this, and she tweeted out something sarcastic and basically was making fun of him for that. She's not a believer. Of course, then it made it to The View, which I don't encourage you to watch because you'll want to you'll punch your TV. But The View, there was a lady on The View who basically said that Mike Pence has mental illness because he thinks he talks to Jesus. Well, this person wasn't a believer either, and they didn't understand the concept of prayer. But Mike Pence understood that Christians are to be prayer-driven. We all struggle with prayer. Most of us pray pray spontaneously throughout the day. We don't struggle with that, but we struggle with those set times of prayer where we get alone with the Father. And the reason why is because we deal with busyness. Prayer is hard work. We deal with so many more distractions in our day and time that often keep us from praying. And many of us have to battle self-sufficiency. We all have our needs met for the most part. We have so many forms of entertainment. And so there's not an urgency to want to pray. There's not a desperation because many of us pray when we're desperate. When the bottom drops out, the roof caves in, we all have a tendency to want to pray more at that point. But the Bible makes it very clear that we are to be prayer-driven Christians, not only individually, but corporately. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, the Apostle Paul says, be devoted to prayer. In other words, we're not just to do it here and there. We are to be devoted to prayer. We are to live in an atmosphere of prayer, an attitude of prayer. We are to have that time with God on a regular basis. And here's what I have found. If you don't schedule that time to spend with God, reading his word and praying, you're not going to do it because of the tyranny of the urgent. There's so many other things that vie for your attention. There is the tyranny of the urgent things that grab your attention that keep us from making prayer a priority in our lives. Well, that's what I want to talk about this morning is how to be a prayer-driven Christian, or I could subtitle this, Principles of Effective Prayer. So turn, if you will, to James chapter 5. We are finishing up the book of James. We've been going verse by verse through this book, and we find ourselves in the last section, verses 13 through 20, on the topic of prayer. Now, remember, James is the Proverbs of the Old Testament. James is wisdom literature in the New Testament. Remember, wisdom to the Jewish person was being skilled at godly living. And so if you want to be a wise person, according to James, you need to be a prayer-driven Christian. In fact, a Christian who is not praying on a regular basis and is not devoted to prayer is going to lack perspective in their life, they're going to lack purity in their life, and they're going to lack passion for God in their life. They're going to tolerate the things of the world more. If you're drifting in your walk with God, there may be a direct correlation to the fact that you're not praying like you should. James opens with prayer in chapter 1, and he says we're to pray. Now he closes And he tells us to pray. And he's writing to Jewish Christians. Many of them were being persecuted for their faith. They were being oppressed by the rich. And so they were suffering. And you know what? James doesn't say, well, take a vacation. They couldn't take a vacation. You need to decompress. He doesn't tell them to do that. Nothing wrong with decompressing, but they didn't have the financial resources to do that. He doesn't say go to the mall and go on a shopping spree and put $1,000 on your credit card to help alleviate or take a... Take, take a benzoid, you know, to alleviate the anxiety. He didn't have that. He didn't have that. And so James calls him to pray. And if you and I are going to be prayer-driven Christians, 
James says we need to do several things. Let's look at the first three that we looked at last week. First of all, I noted for you that if we're going to be prayer-driven Christians, we must pray when we are hurting. We must pray when we're hurting or we're suffering. In verse 13, he says, is any of you being mistreated? He should pray. When the bottom drops out, the roof caves in. Listen, we normally pray. That's when we get desperate. We get on our face before God. We may even fast and pray. Then secondly, James says if we want to be prayer-driven Christians, not only must we pray when we're mistreated, but secondly, we must pray when we are happy, when we are joyful, when we are cheerful. He says, is any of you cheerful? He said, let them sing songs of praise. Praise is a form of prayer. So in other words, one of the ways that we pray is we offer up the sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise on a regular basis. In fact, that's one of the tests of a healthy Christian. Do they have an attitude of gratitude? Are they always grumbling? Are they always complaining? We all battle that. The more you have, the more you tend to grumble. But listen, if things are going good in your life, don't feel guilty unless you're not living for the Lord. But listen, he says, offer up the sacrifice of praise to God. Give thanks on a regular basis. And then thirdly, if you want to be a prayer-driven Christian, James says, pray when you are sick. In verses 14 and 15, he says, if you're sick, go to the elders of the church, request prayer, and the prayer offered in faith will heal the sick person. And if you remember last week, I mentioned to you that the word sick is used two different ways in the New Testament. 50% of the time, it's used of physical sickness, physical ailment. And so if you have a physical sickness, go to the leadership of the church, ask them to anoint you with oil, which is symbolic of the Holy Spirit, and have them pray. And if it's the Lord's will, the Lord will what? Heal you of your physical ailment. He doesn't heal everybody, but if it's God's will, he will heal you physically. The word sickness also 50% of the time refers not just to physical illness, but to weakness. Someone who's struggling in their walk with God, they want to throw in the towel. They're discouraged. They're beleaguered. They're beat up. Just like these Jewish Christians, they wanted to cash in the chips. And James says, look, if you're struggling and you want to quit, go to the elders of the church. They will anoint you with oil. That oil is medicinal. And what will happen is God will strengthen you so that you will continue to run the race. So those are three ways to be prayer-driven Christians or to be effective in our prayer life. Well, James gives us a fourth way that you and I can be effective in our prayers and be prayer-driven, and that is this. We need to pray with an attitude of faith. We need to pray with an attitude of faith. Notice, if you will, verses 14 and 15 of James 5. He says, is any among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And then I want you to underline or circle verse 15, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Notice here, James says, if the sick person wants to get better... The condition is they must pray in faith. Now, whose faith is he talking about here? Well, he's probably talking about the faith of the elders, and he's probably talking about the faith of the individual who's coming to be healed. The Bible says that if you and I are going to be effective in our prayer life, we must pray with an attitude of faith. Now, what is faith? Well, Hebrews 12 says that it is impossible to please God without faith. We don't have to have a lot of faith. Jesus said if you have the faith of a mustard seed. But in the Bible, there are three levels of faith that Jesus spoke about in the Gospels. There is no faith. Uh, Jesus would rebuke those who have no faith. 
And then he said to the disciples when they were out on the storm, he said, O ye of little faith. And then, of course, Jesus said to the Gentile centurion that shocked the Jews, he said, that Gentile had great faith. See, the Bible calls us to have great faith. What is great faith? Great faith is taking God at his word. In other words, it's trusting God even though I can't see it. I'm reminded of a nun who worked for a home care health system, and she was making her rounds, and unfortunately, she ran out of gas, and so she got out of her car, and thankfully, there was a gas station right nearby, and she walked to the gas station, and she said, I ran out of gas. Can I borrow a container, and I'll put a little bit of gas in, and she said, I'll get me enough to be able to drive to the gas station and fill up. Well, the attendant said, sorry, ma'am, somebody already borrowed the container. If you'll wait a little bit, we will allow you to use it. She said, well, I don't have time. I got to go visit some patients. So she walked back to her car and she rummaged through her car to find a container. And guess what she found? She found a bedpan. So she took it to the gas station and she filled up the bedpan with a little bit of gas. And she walked all the way back very carefully to fill up her gas tank. And as she's filling it up using this bedpan, two strangers walked by. They looked at each other and they said, now that's faith. See, faith is believing the impossible. And listen, we all struggle with faith. We have a swaying battle of faith when it comes to trusting God. We know in our heads God will do what he says he will do, but the reason why we struggle is because God doesn't always operate on our timetable. God doesn't always do what we want him to do when we want him to do it. And so we have that swaying battle of faith. One minute we trust God, the next minute we don't. In fact, James talked about that in chapter 1, that swaying battle of faith. The good news is, is even when I struggle in my faith and I doubt God, God many times still rescues. Why? Because he's building my faith. He's teaching me. But God wants me to trust him. A great passage is in Mark chapter 11. Jesus here is talking to the disciples about faith. And here is what he says in verse 22, he said to them, have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Now, Jesus applies this parable in verse 24, and he says this, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Jesus here defines great faith. And what he says is, whatever you ask for in prayer, the Greek says, believe that you've already received it and it will be given to you. Now, this is not a carte blanche promise that whatever you ask for, you're going to get it. This is not a blank check. In fact, the prosperity teachers use this passage and they basically say, we name it and we claim it. We blab it and we grab it. Why? Because they believe if you speak words of faith, God will give you what you ask for. On the other hand, when you don't speak words of faith, you negate your faith and God will not answer your prayer. Now, there's a half truth there because Jesus said, whatever you say, Believe that you have received it. And too often in prayer, many of us will come to God in prayer. And you know what we do? We contradict our faith by our words and our behavior. God, I'm asking you to do this. Oh, I don't know if the Lord's going to do that for me. I don't know. And we walk around with a negative attitude 
and we don't reaffirm our faith. Now, this doesn't mean if I say over and over, I'm healed, I'm healed, I'm healed, God is going to guarantee my physical healing. No, because 1 John chapter 5 says that we only get for what we ask for if it's his will. So we must interpret Scripture with Scripture. But nevertheless, God calls us to have faith. And many of us struggle with that swaying battle of faith. And the reason why is because too often we focus in on our circumstances rather than God. Now, in Luke 17, the disciples said to Jesus, Jesus, increase our faith. And so the question is, how can we grow in our faith? How can we increase our faith? Because listen, our faith is dynamic. It needs to be growing. Well, I think there are three things that you could do to increase your faith. Let me give them to you. Number one, you need to be in the Word of God. You need to be Word-saturated. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing a message about Christ. When I'm in the Word, when I'm meditating on the Word, you know what it does? It bolsters my faith. Secondly, I need to focus on God, not my circumstances. That's the battle. Because too often, we focus in on what we can see, what we can hear, what we can feel, our five senses. And listen, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. Too often, we look at our circumstances. You know what that does? It causes our faith to have a nosedive. We got to keep our focus on God. That's why the word is so important. That's why praise music is so important. When Peter got out of the boat, and was able to walk on water, it was because he focused in on God. As soon as he took his eyes off Jesus, what happened? He looked at the water, and he began to sink, and that's exactly what happens to us. And listen, our faith will be tested because there are times where God will not answer the way we want him to, and am I going to continue to trust God even though I can't see why I'm going through what I'm going through? That's the test of faith. And then finally, if you want to increase your faith... Focus on what God has done for you in the past. When you recount God's blessings, when you recount God's answered prayers in the past, when you recount other answers to prayers and how God has delivered you in the past, you know what that does? It bolsters your faith in the present. God, you helped me then. I'm trusting you to help me now. When David fought Goliath, he said, Lord, you delivered me from the lion. You delivered me from the bear when I used the slingshot. Now you will deliver me from this oversized monkey. You see, David recounted what God did for him in the past. And so if you want to be a prayer-driven Christian, if you want to be effective, the Bible says that we are to pray with an attitude of faith. That is taking God at his word. That is great faith. And listen, the Bible says when we persevere in our faith and do not grow weary, we will, what, receive a harvest in due season. So the question this morning for you is how is your faith? Are you trusting God this morning? What is it you're trusting him for? When you doubt God, confess it to him. He's merciful. He's faithful. And in spite of our doubt, God is often gracious to us, but God wants us to trust him when we are seeking him in prayer. There's another way that you and I can be prayer-driven Christians whenever we seek the Lord in prayer, and that is this. We need to pray by confessing our sins to God. If we're going to be prayer-driven, we must confess our sins to God on a regular basis. Notice, if you will, verses 14 and 15, he says in James 5, "...is any among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they should pray over him after anointing him with olive oil in the name of the Lord." The prayer of faith will save the sick person 
and the Lord will restore him to health. And then notice what it says here. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. You say, Mike, confession's not even mentioned there. It's implied, even though it's not stated directly, because in order to be forgiven, you have to confess your sin. And so here's the picture. Here is a sick person. More than likely, it was Jewish people that were beat up because of what was going on in their life, and they were coming to the elders of the church, and the reason why they were sick was because of sin in their life. They were doubting God. They turned away from God. They weren't walking with God, and James implies here the reason that they were sick, either physically or emotionally, is because of sin in their life, and James says if they confess their sin, that's implied, they will be forgiven. And so the implication here is this. If you want to be a prayer-driven Christian, you must be a person that regularly confesses your sin to God. What is confession? The Bible says homilageo in the Greek. It means to agree with God. Whenever you sin, you're agreeing with God that what you did was just wrong. You're in traffic and somebody cuts you off or somebody's nasty with you and inside a cuss word comes to your mind. You, Lord, I shouldn't have thought that, Lord, forgive me. You're at the gym and you see somebody and you lust after them. Lord, why did I think that thought? Forgive me, Lord. Or you're in an argument with your spouse and you say something very biting, very cutting, and it leads to an argument. You say, Lord, I shouldn't have said that. Forgive me for that. You're agreeing with God that what you said was wrong. That's what confession is. Now, it's different than repentance. Confession is agreeing with God. Repentance is turning away from it. And the Bible says we're to keep a short account of sins. When we blow it, we're to ask God to forgive us. Now, sometimes we get lazy and we don't do that. You say, well, Mike, what about sins that I forget to confess? We all sin and we forget. Well, you know, God had a ceremony in the Old Testament for those sins that were forgotten. It was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. God would have them perform that ceremony once a year to collect all the sins of the nation that they forgot to ask for forgiveness for, and they would be forgiven. And so what I do typically, not to be legalistic, but last night I prayed with my wife. I said, Lord, forgive me and Laura of all the sins that we may have committed today that we're not aware of. You say, well, why does James say to confess sin? Why does he imply that? Well, it says you will be forgiven. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, when you confess your sins, you're forgiven. The Bible mentions two types of forgiveness, and you need to understand this because if not, you'll get things theologically wrong. First of all, the Bible distinguishes between salvation forgiveness and family forgiveness. Salvation forgiveness happens at the moment of salvation. It is a one-time act where God declares you no longer guilty of sin. He forgives your sins past, present, and future. It is a judicial decision. It is irrevocable. It is unchangeable. You are forgiven of all your sins. You cannot lose salvation forgiveness. But now that I'm in the family of God, I need what 1 John 1.9 calls family forgiveness. Family forgiveness is where I confess my sins in order to keep my intimacy with God. It's not that God hasn't forgiven me of salvation. I don't need to worry about losing my salvation, but if I don't deal with sin in my life and I don't confess it, what can happen is basically my intimacy with God ends up being hindered. It's basically keeping the pipes clean. As you know, I have three daughters and a wife, four females in the house, and When we were all living together, one of the problems that I dealt with was hair in the drain. And I remember many times 
the bathtub would start to fill up. And so I had to grab my snake and I had to sliver it down there and I would pull up all that gunk, which was really nasty. And then I would take the liquid Drano and I would pour it in there in order to clean the pipes. Did you know confession is liquid Drano? That's what confession does. It keeps the pipes clean so my intimacy with God is there. So you want to keep a short account of sin. You want to confess your sin. Because listen, a Christian that's not interested in confessing their sin, they're not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, are you going to do it perfectly? No. But 1 John 1, 9 says this. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Greek says he continually cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's family forgiveness. Has nothing to do with salvation forgiveness, which, by the way, clears up what I just read in Mark 11. If you stand praying and you do not forgive someone who's hurt you, God will not forgive you. In what sense is God not going to forgive you? He's not threatening to withhold salvation forgiveness. He's threatening to withhold family forgiveness. Because if he threatens to withhold salvation forgiveness, then we could lose our salvation. But I believe the Bible doesn't teach that. So that's why we got to deal with things in our heart and deal with things in our life is through confessing our sins to God. So how about you? Are you dealing with sin in your life on a regular basis? If you want to be a prayer-driven Christian, confess your sin. Well, there's one final way this morning by which you and I can be prayer-driven Christians, and that is this. We must pray for one another. We must pray for one another. Notice, if you will, verse 16 of James 5. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another. Here it is. And pray for one another so that you may be healed. One of the marks of a prayer-driven Christian is they not only pray for themselves, they not only pray for their children and their family, but they look outward and they're consistently praying for other people on a regular basis. This is one of the one another's of Scripture. There's a number of them. Pray for one another, encourage one another, rebuke one another, give to one another. The one another's of Scripture. We are to pray for one another. And I've learned that when requests come my way because of the advent of email and texting and everything else, there is so much information thrown at us, it can be overwhelming. I've learned to pray on the spot for somebody. So have you. Because if you don't pray for them right then and there, either quietly or verbally, you will forget to pray for them. We've all been there before where you said, hey, man, I'll be praying for you. And then you run into that person and you realize you didn't pray for him. So in your head, you go, Lord, help Bob in Jesus' name, blah, 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 blah. And then you say, amen. Hey, Bob, I've been praying for you, brother. How you doing? See, we got to pray for people on a regular basis. Jim Kelly, many of you heard about, he played for Miami and then he had an illustrious career at the Buffalo Bills, didn't win a Super Bowl. But Jim Kelly is a believer. He's been through a lot of suffering in his life, lost a child, and he went through several rounds of cancer. And it was throat, tongue cancer, a very difficult time. And one of the things in the article that I read that he requested and he cherished very much was the prayers of God's people because he realized that praying is what was going to cause him to be healed and to get through this. And God did heal him. And then the cancer came back and he went through another whole round of chemotherapy. And so we need to be requesting prayer for other people. Now, what are we to pray for when we lift others up? Because, listen, praying for others, intercessory prayer is hard work. It takes intentionality. 
Because we can get caught up in our own needs and what's going on in our environment. We forget other people. Here are some categories of people that I pray for on a regular basis that I would encourage you to maybe develop in your own prayer time because what it will do is it will help you to have a regiment. It will help you to have a system where you could pray on a regular basis for these things. And this list is not exhaustive, but notice you ought to be praying for your family, friends, the government in America, the Bible says in 1 Timothy 2, we're to pray for those in authority. Persecuted Christians, Hebrews 13 talks about that in other nations. Then there's unbelievers. If you're reaching non-believers, are you praying for non-believers? Then there are church leaders, those in authority in the church. Then your enemies. And then, of course, ministries and missionaries. You say, Mike, I can't even think about those things. Well, listen, that's why I told you it's one of the marks of a maturing Christian. Show me a Christian that doesn't intercede for others. I'll show you a spiritual infant in Jesus Christ. It takes work. And listen, those verses up there, Colossians 1, Ephesians 1, they are model prayers that we can use templates to pray for other people. There's a church in South Korea. South Korea is legal to be a Christian. North Korea is illegal. South Korea will tell you they're a Christianized nation. There's a church there called Yodo Full Gospel Church, South Korean church. It has 800,000 members. It has 100,000 cell groups, small groups that meet. They have seven services every Sunday morning translated into eight languages. This church is known, Paul Youngie Cho is the pastor, he's now deceased. This church is known for its commitment to prayer and intercessory prayer. In fact, in 1973, they developed what is called a prayer mountain. You'll notice the picture up on the screen. And a lot of people go there not only to see it, but when they go there, they will find people praying. In fact, this church has prayer vigils all night, all the time, where they pray through the night, and it's no wonder they see answered prayers, they see healings, they see things happen, because they are devoted to prayer. People will get up at 5 a.m. to go to prayer. Well, you know, Pastor, I can't come to prayer at 8.30. It's too hard. I'm just too tired. I got to sleep in, you know. I got so much stuff going on. You want to know why the church in America is dead? Is because we're not praying. We make excuses. Listen to what this church is all about as far as the prayer mountain. One person said this, and I quote, Prayer Mountain was established in 1973 and can accommodate up to 10,000 people. With free shuttle buses running daily from the church, the resort welcomes believers from all over the world. The bus trip takes one hour and buses leave from 7 a.m. to 7.30 p.m. Popular with older devotees, some people stay at the resort for a couple of days while others go for a day trip. You say, well, this is a vacation. No, people go there to stay. But notice what they do. Upon arrival, you can hear cries from people praying on top of the mountain, even on days of extreme cold. There are a range of different places to pray, and groups are in private, and four services are held at the main sanctuary throughout the day. This happens all the time. Intercessory prayer, they're praying for one another. Prayer is hard work. We got to set time aside to be alone with the Father. The Bible says, be still and know that I'm God. We've got to do that. And listen, I battle it too because I'm so busy. But listen, I'm not too busy to pray. 
We got to make it a priority. So if you want to be a prayer-driven Christian, you got to intercede and pray for others. You say, well, Mike, how can I do that effectively? Well, James gives us one way. Notice what he says here. If we're going to pray effectively for one another, we must confess our sins to one another. Verse 16, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Now, I want you to notice the shift here because it goes from go to the elders and then pray for one another. Confess your sins to the elders and then confess your sins to one another. See, what James is talking about here is body life. He's talking about the church. Church is not just an event Sunday morning at 9 or 11. I go to church, praise God, give my offerings, go home, and I'm not involved in the body of Christ. That is not biblical Christianity. That's why the Bible uses the human body as an analogy. We're one, but we're different. And listen, if we're going to pray for one another, one of the ways to do that effectively is to confess our sins to one another, which means this, I am sharing my struggles with others. Because listen, when I share my struggles with others, they're able to pray for me more effectively. That doesn't mean I air out my dirty laundry to everybody. You're not going to do that. But you ought to have a group of people you're accountable to that you can share your struggles with that will pray for you. And you know why we don't confess our sins to one another in the American church? The reason why is because we struggle with pride. We don't want to let people know that we're struggling. And listen, there are churches that create a culture of judgmentalism where we feel like we're going to be judged and we can't share our struggles. Now, this doesn't mean we're not accountable. It doesn't mean we don't hold people accountable. But we ought to confess our sins to one another because, listen, when you get your struggles out in the dark, you know what it does? It helps you get you victory. But we're too walled in the American church. We're too proud. We don't want to share that we struggle with certain things. And listen, we all have our struggles here. I'm not saying you have skeletons in your closet, but we all have our struggles and our bents and our temptations and things that we're working through. We're all broken to a certain degree. So we need to confess our sins to one another. Listen, this is preventative maintenance. It's not just going to the elders of the church and confessing your sins to them or asking them to pray. He says, no, this is for the larger body because it's preventative maintenance. In fact, if more Christians prayed for one another, confessed their sins to one another, there would be less going to the elders. Why? Preventative maintenance. Now, listen, we're not to confess our sins to plants. You say, what are you talking about? I read a bizarre article a year and a half ago that blew my mind. There's a seminary in New York called the Union Theological Seminary. And when I read the article, I thought, this is nuts. The students there actually had a ceremony where they were confessing their sins to the plants. It was a literal ceremony. Here is what the article said, and I quote, Today in chapel, we confessed to plants. Together we held our grief, joy, regret, guilt, sorrow in prayer, offering them to the beings who sustain us, but whose gifts we too often fail to honor. What do you confess to plants in your life? The answer is nothing, because it's stupidity. The Bible says confess your sins to one another, not to plants. We don't worship the creation. We worship the creator. What kind of stuff is that? That's part of the world system. 
It's part of the world system. I read another one where they, there was a group of people that actually went out into the ocean and they had a marriage ceremony where these people married the ocean. They married the water. And when they went into the water, that was them consummating the marriage. I thought we are a mindless society, are we not? This is where we've gotten. The Bible says confess your sins to one another and that will help us to effectively pray for one another. You say, Mike, I pray for others and I don't see answers to prayer. And sometimes that can be discouraging. And that's why we sometimes quit or we give up. We say, God, you're not hearing my prayer. And listen, we've all battled that before. But I can assure you, God hears your prayers. It's either yes, no, or wait. And so God wants us all here to be prayer-driven Christians. He wants Northwest Chapel to be a prayer-driven church. Listen, the fruit of this church, the power of this church, the needs of this church will be met only by prayer. That's why we are committed to prayer here. Sunday morning, 8.30. We do it once a month after the second service. We do it at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Tuesday. And we're going to add more times. We're going to allow you to come up here and pray after the service. Not this service, but we're going to institute that. We're going to do prayer walks. We're going to be a praying church. Because I believe the effectiveness of a church is basically built on prayer. And listen, I need to challenge myself with that as well. And so what does James say if you and I want to be effective in our prayer life, if we want to be prayer-driven Christians? Number one, pray with an attitude of faith. Secondly, pray by confessing your sins to God. And thirdly, pray for one another. And the way to do that effectively is to confess your sins to one another. Now next week, James is going to give us four or five more principles on how to be a prayer-driven Christian. And we'll finish up the book of James. We're going to look at the book of Haggai next in the Old Testament. And then we may launch into the book of Revelation verse by verse. We're going to go chapter by chapter through the book of Revelation. We're going to take you through that tour. It's going to be a wonderful study as we go through that. Let's pray this morning as we close. There's no closing song due to the baptisms. Father, we thank you for your word to us. Thank you for challenging us to be prayer-driven Christians. I pray this morning, Father, that we would pray when things are good, when things are bad, and we would not just pray throughout the day, but we'd have that set time of prayer. And Lord, it's a battle for all of us because we get so busy. We all battle laziness. We all battle weariness. And so, Father, I pray that we would be committed to prayer. And if you need prayer this morning, for whatever reason, it could be financial, it could be physical, it could be emotional, relational. Just lift your hand up in the air, and I want to pray for you right now. If you need prayer, just lift your hand up. Don't be embarrassed. God wants to hear your prayer. Father, I lift up those this morning who are struggling, Lord. They have a need in their life. I ask that you would, Father, bless them, whatever it is. I pray that you would hear their prayer. And that, Father, they would persevere in prayer. They would not quit. They would keep on asking. They would keep on seeking. They would keep on knocking. And that, God, you would minister to them in the power of your Holy Spirit. And if you're sitting here this morning, is there someone you need to forgive? Is there someone you need to forgive this morning, as Jesus said, in order to keep the pipes clean? I want you right now to raise your hand and say, pray for me. I need to forgive somebody that has hurt me. And I want to ask the Lord for strength. Lift your hand up. Don't be embarrassed. Father, I pray for that person, Lord God, who is struggling with unforgiveness, that you would forgive and enable them to forgive that person that has hurt them. It is hard, Father, sometimes to forgive those who offend us. And I pray for grace for those who are struggling with forgiveness. Father, we thank you this morning for your word to us. Bless us now. And as we go out, I pray that we would plant the seed of the gospel 
into the hearts of people in this community. Father, give us effectiveness in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.